a New York Times piece called Take a Bow, Madonna. The writer acknowledges the enormous significance of her work to the cultural canon. Quoting Madonna is a cultural wrecking ball who's dared to be everything, performer, songwriter, producer, actor, director, children's book author, at a time when women were encouraged to stick to one lane. And Madonna Louise Roney Ciccone turns 65 today. During her 40 years in the spotlight, she's been loved and loathed an equal message, but she is an absolute uh, icon, isn't she? She's something else, Madonna. Yep, certainly is. Yeah, proper legend. Uh, so, uh, happy birthday, Madonna, 65 uh, today. Uh, you're on the panel on RNZ National. Uh, that question of the day, keep it coming. We'll do our snap poll results in about uh, five, six minutes' time uh, to that um, question that uh, Simon Powell bought the nation. Uh, Are you regretting it yet, Simon? Oh, busy, busy making friends um, out here. Which is, <laughs> there has never been a better time to be alive than now. 2101, yes or no. Yesterday, three children, including a seven-year-old, approached the steps of Parliament to deliver a message about climate change. It was organised by Save the Children on the back of their recent Message in a Bottle campaign, which compiled a total of 175 messages from kids to deliver to Climate Change Minister James Shaw. Some of the demands included greater investment in transport, less plastic packaging and awareness of the impacts on Pacific Nations. And with us is Jackie Southey, Save the Children Advocacy and Research Director. I thought, oh, it's good to highlight this. Jackie, kia ora. Are you there, Jackie? Yes, can you hear me? Fill us in. What was the Message in a Bottle campaign about? So the Message in a Bottle campaign is all about children sharing their views on climate action they want our politicians to take in response to climate change and I guess heading off the climate crisis that we're in the middle of. What age range were the kids who took part in? So we had messages from as young as six right through to 22-year-olds. Most of the messages probably were 14 and under. And, uh, yeah, they, they really shared their concerns and they were really keen to see our politicians step up and take action. I want to know more about those concerns. We talked about that, kind of, a, we, we alluded to that. Paula Penfold uh, uh, talked about that. And whenever I uh, look at the news and my five-and-a-half-year-old wants to know what's happening there, because it happens increasingly, I just, it's a moment of thought. What do I say again? Do I address mm. just the issue right now about a flood or a fire? Do I uh, alert little Junior to the wider issue? It must be a really big moment for young people. Yeah, it really is, and it's coming through strongly, that real heightened sense of concern, anxiety, worry. And part of that is, you're right, Wallace, there's a lot of information about the problem, the crisis, what's actually happening. What's less available for children is what's being done in response and, and what should be done to change and in ways that they can understand that. And that's also they want uh, platforms where they can share their voices and that easy, accessible information. So uh, that's really what we've got to look at. We've got to share the solutions with them. Um, we've got to include them in the discussions and reassure them that they're being heard because, you know, they're telling us that they're watching and they've got high expectations. And, you know, some of the letters really pointed that out, things like... Um, you know, dear politicians, the world has a giant problem. Not kidding. You can be the leaders. I believe that you can be the best. 
you know, stuff like that. They're really, you know, they're watching, they're encouraging, and they want action. Is there the next Greta Thunberg amongst them? Oh, I think there's many Greta Thunbergs amongst them. And, you know, they're really articulate young people. Uh, you know, one of the young students that was speaking yesterday, uh, she talked about the impact on the Pacific. And although the, um, Tyler, her name was Tala, and although the Pacific is only responsible for, you know, 1% of, of the climate change, in, um, climate change, I guess, production, uh, the impact is absolutely severe and heightened there. And, you know, we work directly in Vanuatu, and that nation is absolutely still suffering from back-to-back cyclones earlier this year. She was thoroughly impressive, wasn't she? She, You could see the absolute uh, truth and honesty and concern in her message. Yes, yes, 100%. Children, you know, we need to give them credit for their agency. They know what's going on. And so um, sometimes when we limit the messaging... Uh, we're taking away the opportunity for them to be part of the solution and I guess have some sense of security that adults are listening and we are acting and it's Mm. not just um, doom and gloom and all the floods and fires are coming. Yeah, I'm so torn on this as it's so great the way that you know, recycling and other environmental kind of awareness issues, you, you know, have come more to the fore because kids were educated on it and the like. But there's also this kind of edge of the personal responsibility around this seems to be being put on the individual. And all these kids have this incredible sense of responsibility and fear. But it's like they never drilled an oil well. They never subsidised fossil fuels. And it feels like there's so much energy about people going, oh, well, you should you know, not use plastic bags or whatever. Where is the massive focus? I know it's not an and or, but, you know, it would be so great if there was a more of a focus to go. Over the last, you know, 120 years, the biggest companies in the world, owned with the most shareholders, have all been, you know, in the top 10. There's always been these big uh, gas companies. So many people, there's still hundreds of millions of dollars of fossil fuel subsidies across um, the world every year being um, passed from, you know, the public to these companies. All the people who've made all of this money out of out of getting the oil out and using it, they're not being focused. Yet there's these kids who are five years old going, oh, it's my problem that the climate crisis is here. How about we try and claw back, stop the subsidies, and claw back all this money and get reparations from these people who have profited wildly out of it? If you've never drilled or profited from an oil well, should it be your responsibility? Yes, very interesting, Simon. Can I just raise that issue, Jackie, in terms of picking up that uh, notion? Uh, that Because it seems to me that youth around the world are kind of at the forefront uh, of this. I'm looking here, it's from the New York Times, 16 young Montanas have sued their state over climate change. Um, they've emerged victorious uh, from a first-of-its-kind climate trial. Judge Cathy Seely's ruling in the youth's favour um, it sets a powerful precedent for the role of green amendments in climate litigation, and it's quite a it's quite an historic um, uh, announcement there in the last few days. It does seem that the voice of youth uh, is ever present in the notion in the idea of climate change uh, activism right now. Oh, absolutely. I really, truly believe we wouldn't even have the gains that we have if it wasn't for our children and young people demanding those gains. I mean, banning plastic bags was a movement that was really started by young people. There were young people here in New Zealand calling for it and other countries, and it took the government to do it. So, yes, you need that 
political capital and that willpower to make that big policy change. Because, yeah, if I don't use plastic bags, great. But what if 10 other people do? But if it's a political decision that no one can use them, you know, then no one does and they, they start disappearing. And also the point about the, the people responsible for those, you know, the drillers and such and such, I don't think we've done nearly enough to hold those big companies to account. Coca-Cola produces 100 billion plastic bottles every year. Imagine if they were accountable for the mess that they create rather than just enjoying the profits of that production. All right. Uh, very good, Jackie. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's Save the Children Advocacy and Research Director Jackie Southey. That's um, a number of children approached the steps of Parliament uh, to deliver a message about uh, climate change recently. The voice of uh, young people talking about that today. And um, so to the poll results, here they are. Uh, and if you've just joined us uh, on the panel, by the way, we have Paula Penfold and Simon Pound. And the show, if you miss it, uh, is on Apple, it's on iHeart, it's on Spotify. Here are the results. There has never been a better time to be alive than now, says one Simon Pound. Uh, <laughs> Not since, since you said that. You said that. Data, since Stephen Pinker, since like you know any any objective measure you can look at. Stop whitewashing yourself. <laughs> Stop whitewashing yourself. Okay, so there's never been a better time. To, and the real experts are my listeners. Here's what they've said: thirty-seven percent said yes. There's never been a better time to be alive. Sixty-three percent said. No. This is why we need the disclaimer. Because yeah. if people are able to engage with the world and think that they'd rather go back 200 years, oh my word. <laughs> like, what about the legal rights women with property in all Western uh, countries? Uh, like, I'm not saying it's perfect everywhere, but like, honestly, <laughs> on any measure, the world's a better place to live in today than it's been at any time in history. Well, don't bring me into it's this. Not, it's not all perfect, but it's Wallace. definitely I'm not better than getting it was. involved in this. All right, okay. I'm seeing all the hate coming in for Simon. Just, I'm staying with well. I, I, don't, I don't even feel it could, like, I think if we don't appreciate it, it can roll back. Like, I couldn't even watch The Handmaid's okay. Tale because it felt like it was, you know, five years in the future. Uh-huh. The rights we right. have are Okay, Simon, that's enough. Delicate. <laughs> it is 15 to 5, the panel. Yep, yeah, that's enough. Thank yeah. you. Now, a piece on Newsroom caught my eye, and it was all about jury trials. Twelve heads are better than one. And fairer, they say. But what if most jurors labour under the misconception on the issues at hand? And there remain many misconceptions about sexual assault that makes it a possible recipe for injustice. Usually, when jury members bring stereotypes into the deliberation room, other jurors set them straight. What if they labour under the same misconceptions, writes our guest, who is Yvette Tinsley, a professor of law and co-director of the Centre for Justice Innovation at Teheringa Waka, Victoria University. Professor Tinsley, welcome. Um, hello, thanks for having me on. Really interesting uh, article, uh, Professor Tinsley. You say it's well established that there are many myths and misconceptions about sexual offending in our community from which jurors are drawn. That's right. So we've known for quite a long time from mock juror research that there are many myths and misconceptions about sexual offending, things like what a real, real in inverted commas, rapist looks like, how a complainant might respond um, when they're attacked, calling out for help, delays in complaining, those kinds of things. 
Um, but what we now know is that that also impacts real jurors. And so some work that um, I've done along with um, colleagues in Australia and with Warren Young and Claire Bayliss has shown that real jurors also labour under these misconceptions. Well, sure, so it's straight to our panel, uh, Ed, Paula Penfold. It's depressing, isn't it? Because, of course, those jurors are a representation of the wider community, and if those views are represented there, then it's not surprising, really, is it, that so much sexual assault is happening uh, and that so few women, particularly, report it because of these misconceptions that uh, exists or it's deserved or the, you know the continuation of victim blaming or what actually constitutes mm-hmm. sexual assault it's a microcosm isn't it which I guess is the point you're making your concern is particularly the law uh, but they're a represent uh, the representative of wider society those jurors that's right and that's not to say that there's not things we can do to make jurors function better and juries function better but I guess my point is exactly as you say it's a microcosm we draw those jurors from our society and so what that's showing is that those myths and misconceptions that are out there in society people even subconsciously are going to be taking them into the jury room when they make their deliberations and so there is a a kind of public education piece that's got to go on that might take years and years and years to educate all of us and to bring about awareness for all of us. So there's much more to do in terms of that public education. Yeah, absolutely, Professor. But are jury trials even a good idea in here? Is the adversarial nature and the idea of re-victimising and having this horrific experience for uh, victims in this, like how would you set it up? Like, or what are some Mm. other ways that can be done that don't involve jury trials? Oh, and that's a difficult question, isn't it? And Because I think there will always be cases that need to go to a defender trial uh, where the community risk is such that we need to go down that route. But at the moment, because, you know, as Paul has pointed out, there are lots of people who won't report because of the way the criminal justice process works. We've got a lot of harm to people that's happening that is unaddressed because it's either never coming to the notice of police or the evidence is so finely balanced, you know, where you've got people who are in an ongoing relationship or acquaintances and it's kind of most of the evidence is about each person's story. But sometimes the decision is made not to prosecute. And for those people, there's really no redress within the criminal law because we're not making a decision to prosecute. It's not going to go to defend a trial. So the adversarial system is really the only option. And what really I'm arguing for is to say, look, we've got all of that unaddressed harm. We've got people who then are perhaps going to go on to offend again and again. What if we put in place some restorative options or mediated conversations or educative programs that we could actually address some of that harm that's never going to see a courtroom anyway? We're actually going to be addressing harm that we don't do anything about right now. Final thought, Paula. Which is an excellent idea. But in the meantime, for the cases that are prosecuted, would it be safer in in the pure sense of justice to have such cases heard by a judge alone rather than a jury? Well, I mean, we've got the, you know, ability to hear cases by judge alone. Um, What the research tends to show is that judges are not immune from some of those subconscious beliefs. 
we can educate some of them out. And so from that perspective, it is better. There are some pros and cons, but I don't think just a move to judge alone is the full answer. It's something that they are going to be trying in Scotland, by the way, and they're considering right. in England and Wales as well with their um, rape law reviews. Um, there are also some other options, and it's ones that the Law Commission and myself and Elizabeth MacDonald looked at about a decade ago, which is to say, well, could we explore other ways of the community and judges coming together in in a way that looks different to the traditional jury now. You know, there are some other options that other countries use around panels of judges and juries and things like oh. that. But it probably is worth some exploration. It's really interesting, and I do urge people to ref- to go to that um, or newsroom.co.nz and check out the article. But for now, Professor Tinsley Kiorum. Thanks for being on uh, the show to explain. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it is uh, seven away from five. Yes, someone says, I was a juror on a rape trial a few months ago, and this is one of the many horrific realities uh, of the system. You're on the panel, RNZ National, loving your company this afternoon. Thank you for the responses, your feedback. Simon Pound, Paula Penfold with me today. And finally to this, last year the state of Queensland saw one of the highest road tolls on record. The numbers this year heading in a similar direction. In an effort to combat this, St John's Ambulance is lobbying the state government to make it mandatory for people to have basic first aid training before they get their driver's license. But how about us across the ditch? Are enough of us schooled up on our basic first aid? With us is Karen Ayres, First Training Emergency Care Instructor. Kia ora, Karen. Oh, good afternoon, Wallace. I just thought this was interesting. Uh, they're lobbying, uh, petitioning the government to, as part of your driver's license, to have uh, a core training in first aid. What do you think? I think it's an excellent idea. Um, I always have thought it would be a very good idea. Uh, they did a study back in 2016 and they looked at all the car accidents and all the people that died in those car accidents and they reckon 50% of those people who died could have been saved by basic first aid. Now even the World Health Organization is saying 50% of accident fatalities happen in the first few minutes after an accident and you know the people that are first on the scene are usually other drivers and they are there before the emergency services arrive. So if they can do basic first aid Things like CPR, opening an airway, stopping bleeding, even putting somebody in the recovery position, then you're going to get a lot more people surviving these accidents. Well, I'm ashamed to say uh, I'm one of those that can't do that. Um, But, uh, Paula, given those stats I've just heard right there, it sort of makes sense. Yeah, I think it it probably does make sense. It's expensive. Who pays for that? Um, but in terms of the those stats, that's pr- that's pretty convincing. It, most people would have no clue what to do, and you see that at accident scenes, don't you? And why are you ashamed to say you're not one of those people? Uh, what do you mean you great haven't question, trained? Because or... I haven't trained, I haven't uh, done a first aid course. I'm not quite sure if I actually. Uh, just to Karen's point, if I saw, if I was the first responder or first at an accident, I don't know what I'd do. I just don't know what I'd do. Or if I could do, Simon? No, and I I love the idea of anything that makes us take the privilege about driving more seriously. Like, they're going to look back in the future and think it was bananas that we gave, you know, 15-year-olds with unformed brains, 1,000-kilogram pieces of metal filled with combustible gas and let them drive 100-plus k's an hour and a white-painted line is the only thing keeping you from oncoming traffic. They're going to think it was 
unbelievably foolish. Like anything we can do to have a bit more, bit more kind of awareness of the seriousness of driving. Yeah, Karen. And it's and it's happening all around the world. You know, there's at least 15 countries already that require first aid training for learner drivers. Mm. You know, places like Norway, Austria, Denmark, France, Germany, Spain, they've all got that in place already. So, um, you know, it is a good idea, and it is working, and it is saving lives. Yeah, I see Sweden. So you need you need to do a 10 hour basic first aid course, and then you can get your license. For those of us who uh, aren't equipped with the skills, then what does? And for those who might be interested, what does a a basic first aid training course look like? Uh, well, it covers basic first aid, what to do in an emergency situation, um, how to keep yourself safe, how to keep yourself sort of calm, going through a set of um, instructions in your head, we call it doctor's ABCD, it gives you a standpoint of, okay, what do I start with danger? Are you in any danger if you go and help? And then a, a series of things to do. And the more you learn that, the more you become comfortable and the more it will become second nature if you are in a situation. Because being in an accident situation is definitely stressful. So if you have yeah. pre-planned and you have pre-trained, um, it makes it a lot easier to respond. You know, if we if we taught this in schools, um, you know, a lot of um, children already I teach, they do a first aid certificate in um, PE or outdoor ed or gateway. Um, you know, all of them, all of the students could do this uh, when they do health. Year 11 would be a good year to, to bring it into the curriculum. And that's when they're starting to think about getting their learner drivers. Good. Makes a lot of sense, Karen. Kia ora. Thank you for that. That's Karen Ayres there uh, talking about a first aid from First Training Emergency. And that is uh, the show. Paula Penfold and Simon Pound, who's so up with life. You're, what, are you, what are you doing now? Off for, off for a dance? He's or? smiling. I, I'm Look how play, happy I'm he is. I'm off to play yeah. social netball, so hopefully I don't there get There you go. Keep up the golden days, Simon Pound. Uh, and a bit of Aretha Franklin, because five years ago today, the great singer passed away. I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow at 3.45. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint next.